Today's reading is from Colossians 9 verse, or I'm sorry, Colossians 1 verses 9 to 14. And so from the day we have heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. You guys doing well? Outstanding. Good to have you with us. Welcome to the Desert Breeze Community Church. Also want to welcome those of you that are on YouTube Live right now. Thank you for joining us. I'm just curious if there's any uh, L.A. Rams fans in the house. Any? Any? Because I'm going to have to ask you to leave. Right there? Okay, you're out of here, man. Where's, where's security? Okay, so anybody, uh, do you guys know that the Cardinals are playing the Rams on Monday Night Football? Anybody? Did you know that? Anybody care? <laughs> oh, that breaks my heart. We're going to do a prayer meeting this morning for the Cardinals, but uh, forget that. You guys don't even care, do you? No, we got much more important things to do right here. We're going to study God's Word. I love studying God's Word. I love studying God's Word the way we study it here. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Colossians chapter 1. We're looking at verses 9 through 14. We kicked off this teaching series last weekend. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And uh, we're going to talk about how to thrive as opposed to just survive in life. Look at your sermon notes there. Definition of thrive, it's a verb. It means to grow or develop successfully, to flourish or succeed. Now, this is the second of our 5G process. You heard on the video earlier, but let me just kind of walk through it very quickly. Last weekend, we looked at the first G, and that is really understanding the gospel, not only being able to articulate the gospel, but having the gospel captivate your heart and transform your life. That's the first G, genuine Christian. If you're a genuine Christian, you're going to want to be a growing Christian, a thriving Christian, and that's what this, this uh, teaching is about, is what does it mean to thrive? What does it mean to grow? And then if you're genuine and growing, you'll be a giving and a going, all for God's glory kind of Christian. By the way, I teach that uh, DB Life class. I would highly encourage you to go through that class. If you haven't, it's going to kick off in a couple weeks. We take about 80 plus people a year through that class. It's a great foundations class to what we're all about, helping you to become a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Because we're convinced that fullness of life, we all want to live fullness of life. Jesus came that, I might, that you might have life and have it to the fullest. Fullness of life and being a fully devoted follower of Christ are one in the same pursuit. And so we want to help you to become a fully devoted follower of Christ. In fact, that's our mission statement, is to help unchurched people become fully devoted followers of Christ. Okay, enough of that, but that's what this teaching is about. It's about growing, it's about thriving. And I want to start here by uh, a quote from C.S. Lewis. You can see that on your notes, it'll be up behind us. There's a dialogue in C.S. Lewis's book two from the Chronicles of Narnia, Prince Caspian, where Lucy is interacting with Aslan, who is a lion that represents Christ. And this is how uh, this dialogue goes. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That is because you are old, little one, answered Aslan. Lucy responds, not because you are? Aslan says, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. That's brilliant. The more we grow, the more we find God bigger. Now, Jesus Christ never changes, but our perspective of him changes as we grow. So take a look at your sermon notes here. Here's your first couple fill in the blanks, part of the intro. Spiritual growth or thriving is simply increasing our capacity to see, savor, and show that Christ is bigger, he's bigger than any trial, any suffering, whatever you may be going through, I'm telling you, he's bigger. You need that perspective to get you through that. 
and he's better than any temptation or sin you'll ever face in this world. So Jesus Christ is simply indescribably great and unimaginably good beyond your wildest dreams. He's out of this world. Ephesians 3.8 speaks of the unsearchable riches of Christ. So think about this just for a moment. Your current mental idea of Jesus is the tip of the iceberg. Whatever your concept is of Jesus, it's just a tip of the iceberg compared to really who he is. There, there are still wonderful realities about Christ awaiting your discovery that will blow your mind. Now, Colossians is all about the preeminence of Christ Jesus. We talked about that last weekend, and uh, that he is more superior, sufficient, and satisfying than anything else in this world. The key verse is Colossians 2.10. In him, you have been made complete. So our completeness is in Christ. Chapter 1 is all about Christ's preeminence declared. It's really talking about our wealth and this is the life you've always longed for, whether you realize it or not, a life of thriving in Christ Jesus. Whether you realize it or not, this is the life you long for. The American dream has nothing on this life of thriving in our relationship with Jesus. And this is a prayer by the Apostle Paul for the church in Colossae. And um, this is not not only does it teach us how to pray, if you've ever wondered, I really don't know how to pray, well, you, you read prayers like these, you study prayers like these, but also it's a great prayer to pray for others. If you want to learn how to pray for Pastor Ray, pray this prayer. Please pray this prayer, okay, for me and for you and for each other here in this church family. I've been praying this prayer for our congregation this last week as I was studying. It's a great way to pray. Now, this is where we're going in the study, how to thrive you're going to, if you want to thrive, if you really want to grow, and I think this text helps us with this, live your life saturated with God's word, motivated by your God-given privilege and potential, empowered by God's presence, and celebrating all you have in God's kingdom or family. Let's start with that first one. Live your life, number one, saturated or filled with God's word or God's will. Now keep your Bibles open. We're going to walk through the text, and you're going to see the depth of this text. We've slowed the pace down a little bit as we work through this, uh, working through Colossians, and so we're taking smaller chunks of it, but there's such depth to this. It's just absolutely amazing. Look at verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled. The word filled means to the brim that you would be filled, notice this, with the knowledge of his will or God's desire or God's plan. And we know that God's will is really God's word. So that's what he's praying. That's why I put God's word so saturated or filled to the brim with God's word or God's will. They're one and the same thing. Notice what he says here. He adds to that, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, and so he wants our lives, and we, when we pray this, he's praying for the church in Colossae that we should pray this for our lives, is that our lives would be saturated, filled with God's word, God's will. It tells us in Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Now, when I studied this, I, I, I found it really fascinating. He uses the words knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. And I... I've always kind of wondered, I knew the relationship between knowledge and wisdom, but I, I didn't really know the, uh, really what understanding meant, and, and those all tie together in this, and so let me give you the, the fill in the blanks here. Knowledge is really about facts, it's familiarity with the facts, that's knowledge, and then understanding is a mental putting together, is literally what the Greek word says for that. And I looked at that, and I thought about it, and it's a putting together of what? Knowledge and wisdom. So it's connecting, understanding is connecting knowledge with wisdom. Wisdom is knowledge rightly applied. 
And so it's so you got knowledge, facts, understanding, connecting, wisdom, application. So you can have knowledge uh, without understanding and wisdom, but you can't have wisdom without knowledge and understanding. You have to have them really in that order if they're going to work out in your life. And I've heard people, and, and we can all be kind of armchair quarterbacks where we give people a lot of knowledge, but if it's, if it's separated from understanding and wisdom, it's not helpful. I've actually heard preachers and teachers give you a whole load of knowledge without really any understanding, connecting the knowledge to everyday life. It's like, oh, yeah, so what? What does that mean? How does that apply to my life? So when we sit down with friends, we, we really want to have all three of these. This is what we, what we need. Knowledge, understanding. Let me give you an illustration of this. The Bible says, here's knowledge. Love your neighbor as yourself. That would be knowledge. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, understanding would be that you got someone in your small group or they're a friend, and they, they're struggling with their finances. They told you about that. So understanding would ask the question, is this... Uh, is this a chronic problem in their life? Is it due to their irresponsibility? Or is it due to that they've hit some hard times? Or is it a combination of both? Because you need to have that understanding because you don't want to enable dysfunction. You just don't, you know, uh, just give out money uh, indiscriminately without really thinking about what you're doing. It's like, like the guys that panhandle on the corner. Is it to their advantage that we just give them money every time we pass by? Now, there, there are two th groups of thoughts that are uh, predominant in America today. Most people would say, oh, they've hit hard times. They're victims of, of really difficult circumstances. And so we need to, the government needs to bail them out or help them or whatever. That's, that's one major thought. It's very limited. And then there's the other thought. Well, they just need to get a job. They need to be responsible. Well, what if it's kind of both? That would, that would be understanding. And, and maybe they need to uh, get a job. Maybe they have a job that's not very good. They need to get a better job. They need help in doing that. But maybe they also need to learn some biblical principles of wise financial management. That would be helpful. Along with that, maybe they have hit hard times, and maybe you helping them out would be beneficial. They might need all of that. All of our problems are not... Uh, singular, but they're multidimensional. Uh, there's a lot of factors that play into any issue. And so when we become uh, kind of narrow in, oh, it, this is the problem or this is the problem, it could be a, a, lot of, a lot of different issues happening here, but that's where understanding comes so that you can have wisdom and that's knowledge rightly applied that you can actually help someone rather than enable them in any way. You guys tracking with me? Yeah, I mean, that's important. So you gotta have knowledge. What does the Bible teach in this? We need to have knowledge, but it's gotta be more than knowledge. You could quote scripture all day long, but how does that apply to your life? How do you make the connection to wisdom responding to life from God's perspective, knowledge rightly applied? And that's what's, what he's praying for here. Our lives should be saturated with God's word with wisdom and understanding, that you know how to apply that to your life, to your marriage, to your finances, to your parenting, to your single life, to, to your job life, to every aspect of your life. God's word speaks to every part of our lives, and he's praying for that. That's a great prayer. That's just the first part of the prayer. And then he says, filled to the brim is really literally what it means. Now, you know that if you got a cup and it's filled to the brim and you try to walk with it and it gets jostled a little bit, what's inside the cup does what? Comes out of the cup, all over the floor. So what's inside of you will come out when your life is shaken. Now, you may tell everybody, yeah, Christ is at the center of my life. I want to honor him and glorify him. But the true you... That's kind of more the pretense you, and I, I think it's sincere. You can actually say that, but the real you always comes out when your life is shaken, when you're in hard times and difficulties, and it can be kind of shocking at times. It's like, oh, I didn't know that was down there. <laughs> yes, it is. 
It's down there. You just didn't have it come out. And God allows us to be shaken because then that comes to the surface. There's things that have come to the surface in my life that have shocked me. It's like, oh, I didn't know that was down there. And God says, yes, it's always been down there. I've been very patient with you, but now I'm giving you opportunity to see what's really down there in your heart. Your, your life is not as saturated with my word as it needs to be. And so that begins to reveal that within me. And so... So when you are in extreme pain or incredible danger, you will always act instinctively, and what's inside will come out. When, when what's up comes down, what's in comes out. You guys got that? In other words, I mean, your life gets thrown around a little bit, you're going to see what's really in your heart. Now, that's not something to get down on yourself about, but to, but to redirect your attention to God and say, wow, God, I, I, I need some help here. I need your love. I need your truth. I need your knowledge, understanding, and wisdom in my life in this particular circumstance, in this situation. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, surely what a man does when he is taken off his guard is the best evidence for what sort of man he is. So when your guard is down, that's your true you. And, and so when your life is saturated or filled with God's word, God's will, here's your next fill in the blank, this will make God's word instinct. It'll be second nature in your life. Be second nature. So you want God's word to be second nature. Boom. When your life is jostled around, when it's shaken, what comes out? God's word. Knowledge. Understanding. Wisdom. Now, Jesus' life and ministry was saturated with God's word. When you look at his life, uh, he quoted scripture while preaching the Sermon on the Mount, being tempted by Satan, interacting with Jewish leaders, cleansing the temple, uh, and, and even the cross, when he was on the cross, he's quoting scripture, and there's many more places in scripture where you see that. Now, when you are full of God's word in crisis, this sounds kind of, this might be hard to believe, but I, I believe that we can get to this place. In crisis, you can, you'll be unshakable. Why is that? Because Christ will never leave you or forsake you, Hebrews 13, 5. You can actually be unshakable in crisis. You can actually be unshakable in crisis. It's okay if you're shaken a little bit or a lot initially. A lot of times we have devastating things happen in our life. But if you're totally inconsolable in that being shaken, if you're not, you don't come back to Christ and have a sense of hope, meaning, and purpose in that, then you don't have much of God's word in your life. And so you, you want to be able to kind of recalibrate and get back to that place. But, and so you will be shaken. I'm not denying that. I've, I've been shaken a lot in my life. But I've noticed my reaction and recovery time is narrowing through the years as I saturate myself in God's Word more and more. And so uh, when you are full of God's Word in crisis, you'll be unshakable because Christ will never leave you or forsake you if you really believe that. In criticism, this sounds hard to believe, you'll be unoffendable. Because you know that your identity is in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17. My identity is in Him. It doesn't matter what they say. Well, it kind of does, but not as much as it matters what He says. And then in weariness, you'll be unstoppable. Anybody ever feel like giving up? Show of hands. Like every other day? Like every day? I mean, it's been so crazy here in the last couple of years. I don't blame people for really feeling like wanting to give up. I mean, it's just been flat out crazy with, uh, with this virus and vaccines. And, and right now, I know there's a number of people that are out just, with, just battling the flu now and all kinds of stuff. And after a while, you just get beat down. You feel weary. You feel like giving up. And, and yet, if, you're, if your life is saturated with the truth of God's word in weariness... You'll be unstoppable because you know that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Philippians 4.13. You know, it's interesting. I was going to save this for later, but let me just say it here, okay? That the world says that when you're having a lot of negative thoughts and emotions, just express it. That's, the, that's our modern culture. The religious culture would say, no, 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 suppress it. This is what the Bible teaches reorder it, reestablish it based on God's word. 
And I'm telling you, I can be shaken by life. I can be offended by people. I can feel like giving up. But when I spend time with him, there's a reordering of my negative thoughts and emotions according to God's word. And I begin to have this bigger idea of God. And it shows me that I'm growing. As I grow, I have a bigger idea of God so that I'm not so overwhelmed by the trials of life, and I'm not overtaken by the temptations of life. I'm not as susceptible to those things because he's bigger and he's better than anything else in this world. But it's, it's that growing and, and realigning myself with his word. That's why it's important to saturate yourself with his word. Stand for closing prayer. Okay, no, we got a ton more to do here, but that's, that would be enough right there, wouldn't it? I mean, let's just go out there and work just on this, but there's much more. There's a lot more that uh, that we need to work on, and and it all ties together in this prayer. So how to thrive. Live your life saturated with God's Word. Here's the next one, number two, motivated by your God-given privilege and potential. I mean, we're just warming up here, okay? You guys okay with that? That was the warm-up talk. And so motivated by your God-given privilege and potential. Look at verse 10. So as to walk, the word walk just means to, I'm glad he doesn't say sprint. So as you sprint through life, life's not a, not a sprint. You know, it's, it's, it's more like a marathon, and that's why he's saying walk. Uh, walk in a manner, live your life in a manner worthy of the Lord. That, that idea, and I studied this years ago, really had an impact on my life. Manner worthy means equal of the Lord, equal to your privilege, potential, his promises, all that you are in Christ. Jesus is really what that means. It's a powerful statement. Walk in a manner equal or worthy of the Lord. And notice what happens when we do that. This is fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of him or increasing in intimacy with him. How many have ever heard the story of a gal by the name of Hetty Green? Anybody familiar with, with, this, with this gal? Interesting story. You can Google it. It's actually, um, don't do it right now. Because I know you guys have phones. You're, oh, I'll check this out. You're, you're checking everything I say anyway, aren't you? Most people do. They go, hey, when you said this, yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, of course it is. <laughs> What'd you think? Think I'm lying to you? But there's some things sometimes I might have incorrect. Very seldom. <laughs> Just talk to my wife all the time. <laughs> I'm kidding. Anyway, where was I? Hetty Green. Green, thank you very much. Was called America's greatest miser. When she died in 1915, at 81 years old, she left an estate valued at $100 million. That would be in the category of billions today. She was so miserly that she would eat cold oatmeal in order to save the expense of heating the water. True story. When her son had a severe leg injury, she took so long looking for a free clinic to treat him that, that his leg had to be amputated because of advanced infection. She patted her thin, worn clothes. She'd wear the same clothes over and over again until they just almost fell off of her. But she would pat her thin, worn clothes with newspapers to keep the biting New York City cold from chilling her too badly. And what's interesting, there's much more I could say about her. That's enough, okay? But here's the idea is that she lived in poverty when in reality she was incredibly wealthy. I think that's a picture of many of us as believers in Jesus Christ. We're incredibly wealthy, and we live in poverty. We don't live up to the level of our potential or privilege or based on God's promises. 2 Corinthians 8 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. We are rich beyond your wildest dreams. I mean, we are rich beyond the world's greatest billionaire in so many different ways. In fact, it tells us, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, those that are in Christ have become a new creation. All things have passed away. All things have become new. We have a new privilege and potential and promises. 
all kinds of things we have in Jesus Christ. Now, let me ask you this question. Could there be more to the Christian life than what you are currently living? Absolutely, and there always will be. Don't quit pursuing Christ with all of your heart. I, I, I believe we will always live below our potential and privilege this side of eternity. But man, is it fun trying to get to that place, isn't it? It's a blast. That's what the Christian life is all about. But we got to remember, there, oftentimes I'm living in poverty when in reality I have the riches of God's word, the riches of Christ's presence in my life, the wealth of who he is and what he's done and who I am in light of that. And I live way below that. And I can tell because I'm, I'm, over, I'm overwhelmed by the trials and the difficulties of life oftentimes and, and over, maybe even overtaken by temptations and things. And I say things I shouldn't say in that heat of the moment. And in all of that, it's evident I'm not living to that place of my potential and privilege in him. And, but when I begin to do that, living your life equal to your privilege and potential, it is fully pleasing to God. That's your next fill in the blank. Why is that? Because he has some great plans for us. He wants us to live there. He's inviting us to live a great life in him. Jeremiah 29, 11. You guys are familiar with that. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And so he wants us to live according to his word. He wants our lives to be saturated with his word, therefore saturated with his will, knowing how to apply it to our everyday life. Because God knows, and we know, according to God's word, Jeremiah 2, 19, our sin will punish and reprove us. When someone does something mean to me or ugly or hurtful or hateful, I don't need to get them back because their own sin will punish them and reprove them. The wages of sin is death. Not only that, if they're a Christian, God will discipline them. If they're not a Christian, they're going to face the judgment of God. And that's why God wants us to live according to his will, because he has great things in store for us. His will, his word is based on his, his perfect love and infinite wisdom. He always has our best interest at heart. I love in verse 12 of our text, refers to God as our Father. We see that throughout Scripture, giving thanks to the Father, verse 12. And, and what that reminds me of, every time I, I see that God is our Father, I, I love my kids. I love my grandkids. They don't have to perform or achieve anything for me to love them. And if you think you love your kids or grandkids, that's nothing compared to how God loves them and loves you. There is no parent in this world that wants the very best for their child as much as your father in heaven wants for you. That's a profound statement. So as you live your life equal to the privilege and the potential, and that's what he's praying for, that's fully pleasing to God, but it's bearing fruit in every good work. That's the next one. When I think of the fruit, bearing fruit, I always think of Galatians 5.22 and 23. Anybody know what Galatians 5.22 and 23 is? Fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And he's talking about character there. So we've got to do a little exploration on character. And we live in a day and time, and I see this happen in the church. I certainly see it in the world. People confuse charisma with character. Oh, this guy is so talented. Woo! But if he lacks character, that's not good. I see people do that in the church. We raise people up to places of position and pastoring and all of that. They've got great character. They got great charisma, very talented. People are churches uh, people are attracted to churches with people with charisma, but do they have character? That's why we have a lot of guys crashing and burning in the last decades last few decades, in the last few years. And church is really crashing and burning because there's a lack of character there. Now, my wife and I have probably gone through more uh, difficulties in the last five years than what we've probably gone through in the first uh, 35, it'd be now 40, we're hitting 45 years of our marriage this year, but probably in the first 40 years of our marriage, oh, we had some difficulties. There was a couple times we nearly crashed and burned. Actually, one time in particular, it was about seven years into our marriage, 
but we've experienced more kind of trauma in our lives, in a lot of different areas of our lives, more so uh, in the last five years than, than ever before. And one of the things I keep reminding myself is that I practice what I preach, and I preach, I preach this to you guys pretty consistently, that it's not what happens to you, it's not your circumstances, but what happens in you that makes you or breaks you in life. So it's not what happens to you, your circumstances, but what happens in you, it's your character that makes you or breaks you in life. You hear that? It's almost like I gotta keep telling myself that because when there was times that I just felt like, oh my goodness, this is overwhelming. And I'm telling you, it drove both Nancy and I deeper into Christ and closer to one another through that. And, and it was, it was absolutely, it was, it's been absolutely amazing. I wouldn't trade it for anything now. I look back on it. I wouldn't wish it on anybody. And at the same time, I wouldn't trade it for anything because of what it's doing in my life, continues to do in my life. And it's not what happens to you, your circumstances. And I'm not minimizing your circumstances. I know some of you are going through horrible circumstances. It's not what happens to you. It's what happens in you that makes you or breaks you in life. And it's what's happening to you that reveals what's happening, what's going on inside of you. And God wants to develop your character. And, uh, and so here's what I, I'm going to ask you to do real quick. Just talk to the person sitting around you and, and see if you know the difference. Uh, if you're not sitting around anybody, just talk to yourself just for a moment. And, and that'll be okay. But, um, but ask this question. What's the difference between a thermostat and a thermometer? What's the difference between a thermostat and a thermometer? Real quick. Because all of us would fit in one of those two categories. Real quick, what is that? <clears throat> okay, you guys got that down? Is that pretty, pretty simple? So the question would be, uh, so a thermometer, it would be, we, we could put it in the category, it is something that's reactive. A thermometer is reactive. A thermostat is proactive. Make sense? Okay. So all of us will tend to, and maybe various times in our life, become more reactive than proactive. So we allow our people, things, and circumstances of our life kind of get the best of us. That would be reactive as, it being, as opposed to being proactive. And, and which one do you tend to lean more towards? And it might be revealing maybe a lack of, of character. People with character would be more proactive. People who are struggling in that area and need to grow in their character would be more reactive. And we can all fall prey to that because we all struggle. There's, there's part of the struggle there. But reactive people are affected by the weather or their environment. If the weather is good, they feel and behave good, but if it's bad, they feel and behave bad. Proactive people carry their own weather and environment with them. Thermostat. They're not a thermometer. They're a thermostat. Whether it rains or shines, it makes no difference to them. They will not let people, things, and circumstances get the best of them. They... They cling to Christ. They're filled with God's word. They know that they need to respond appropriately to the situation because their bad response will only make it worse. So reactive people, their behavior is the product of feelings based on their circumstances. So it goes up and down like a thermometer. Proactive people, their behavior is the product of choices based on their values, and their values would be based on God's word. It'd be kind of like this. Someone's hurtful and hateful to you, and you want to pinch their head off. Anybody ever feel like that? Okay, you guys are honest. There's a few honest folks in here. I think the rest of you do, and you just don't want to admit it. And you scare me because of that. I mean, it's at points, you just like... I would like to just take this person out and not for dinner. And so it's during times like that, you need to be so saturated with God's word and the presence of God that you're able to say, don't, don't be overcome by evil, overcome evil with good. 
Lord, help me to respond appropriately. I don't want to be reactive. I want to be proactive. But you'll naturally be reactive because of what's down inside of you. It'll naturally come out. But over time, hopefully, you can get back to that place and recalibrate once again. Like I said, don't just express it. Don't suppress it. Look at your negative thoughts and feelings and realign them with God's Word. It may take time. You may need to go to a counselor. You may need to get with some friends who help you to say, ah, you sound like you've got a lot of brokenness inside. Let's see what God can do to heal that. So next time you can respond more like this. That, that would be just, that's healthy. That's what the Bible teaches us. That's why we have grace. We have God's amazing grace to help us in time of need because God knows we're a mess and we desperately need him. I mean, if you think I'm a mess... Can you imagine what, don't be looking at me like that. <laughs> if you think I'm a mess, uh, just ask my wife. But no, uh, if you think I'm a mess, can you imagine, I know I would be a, even a bigger mess if I didn't know Christ, if I wasn't saturating myself in his word, if I wasn't walking with him every day. I am desperate for him, believe me. And you are too. We're desperate for him. Man, I cling to him every day. I love him. I love Jesus. I love his word. I'm desperate for him. If you're not desperate for him, you're out of touch with reality. It's just a matter of time. That will be revealed to you because he loves you that much. And this isn't a hard message. It's a, it's a message of reality. It's just that God's grace is sufficient for us as we work through this. Okay, and so, so fully pleasing God, bearing fruit in every good work, that's what he wants, and then increasing in intimacy with God, increasing in intimacy with God. That's the last part of verse 10, increasing in the knowledge of God. The, the, the Greek here is precise and correct knowledge of God. So listen to this. Your concept of God determines the quality of your relationship with God. If you don't give a rip about God, you have a poor concept of God. See, our worship rises or falls with our concept of God. If your worship isn't through the roof this morning, it's because you have a low view of God. As you grow, your, your view of God grows, and you want to worship him. You want to give him your life. That's normal Christianity. That's healthy. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. How do you do that? By seeing how big and better God is in your life, having a bigger view of him. Your concept of God not only determines the quality of your relationship with God, but also how well you navigate the sin and suffering of life. Proverbs 9.10, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You're not even, you don't even know how to apply anything in your life until you come to this place of, of fearing God. In fact, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So it gives you all three of those right there. You need to have knowledge of God, but you can have knowledge of God without understanding and wisdom. But he says you're not even in the race unless you understand the fear of the Lord. That's that big view of God. What is the fear of the Lord? It's not being afraid of Him. Ah! It's not that. It's a joyful awe and wonder of the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done for you that ruins you for anything else. And you want him more than anything. That's normal Christianity. And in, in Proverbs 19.23, a, a verse I've been meditating on in the last year, it, it hit me, and I struggled with it a little bit, but it said the fear of the Lord leads to life. And those who have it rest satisfied and will never be visited by harm. That last one kind of hung me up because I thought, I've been visited by harm. I've had a lot of bad things happen to me. But the idea here is I studied it and meditated on it a little bit more. It means that the, whatever harm comes your way, it will not take you down. Because your high view of God, if you have the fear of God, you will fear nothing or no one else. And it brings life, and you'll be fully satisfied, and nothing or no one can take that from you. See, that's intimacy with God. So how to thrive? Live your life saturated with God's word, motivated by your God-given privilege and potential, and then empowered by God's presence. Oh, my goodness, we need this. Look at verse 11. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Can you see the power of God there? He's praying this, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. For all, what does that produce in our life? If we are empowered by God's presence, for all endurance, patience, and joy. That's what it will produce. That's how you know you're being empowered by God's presence. Now, what's the symbol of God's love in the Bible? What's the symbol of God's love in the Bible? 
The cross, the cross. What's the symbol of God's power in the Bible? The resurrection. Who said that? Right there. Good, good job. The resurrection. In fact, the, the cross reference I gave you is Ephesians 1, 19 through 20. It talks about the resurrection. He's praying that they will experience the resurrection power of Jesus in their lives. And what this will do, it will give you endurance, patience, and joy, which speaks of character. These are evidence of inner strength, character. Now, here's your next couple of fill-in-blanks. People who easily give up are impatient and disheartened, are weak, and are dependent upon people and or circumstances to support their fragile hearts. So, think about this. They're blowing up or withdrawal and pouting. Their harsh criticisms, their threats and complaining is a lot of noise to camouflage their weakness. That sounds like the political climate of our day, doesn't it? So when you're around people that are proud and arrogant and critical and angry and bitter and they're going off on you, that's camouflage to cover up their weakness. Now, losing your cool from time to time doesn't mean you're weak, okay? Everybody's going to lose their cool from time to time. But what we're looking for is chronic, ongoing patterns in your life. And if you have these ongoing patterns in your life where you're more like a thermometer than a thermostat, don't get down on yourself. God's giving you opportunity to bring healing to your life. You probably have some brokenness inside your heart that hasn't been healed up. And that going off on people is a defense mechanism because you don't want to be hurt anymore. And and that's understandable. And so we build these walls of anger and harshness and whatever it might be. That's a defense mechanism because there's something going on inside of me. There's incompleteness. There's discontentedness. There's hurt. There's brokenness down deep inside of us. And I'm telling you, God can heal that. So bring it to God's word. Bring it to Jesus. Cry out to him. He'll heal your heart. That's the gospel. Next Next couple fill in the blanks here. Endurance, patience, and joy in the face of difficult people, circumstances, demands tremendous inner strength, character. Here's what's fascinating about the Apostle Paul. Anytime you read his prayers, which I would encourage you to study his prayers, it's a great way to pray and a great way to pray for others and learn to pray. He never prays for circumstance enhancement prayers. He always prays Uh, character enhancement prayers. He wants us to grow in character, but also Christ entrancement prayers. He wants us to be captivated with the beauty and the glory of Christ and grow in character. Not that God is not concerned with our circumstances. He can change our circumstances. I've seen him do that. He's more concerned about you seeing Christ clearly and growing in your character. That's what he wants more than anything. That's the life we all long for ultimately. Now, 2 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10, let me give you a quick illustration here that the Apostle Paul prays three times. It says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. About what? We don't know what it is. And I'm glad it didn't, they didn't write it down because it can apply to any of us. It was a thorn in his flesh. It was obviously a chronic issue that he had that he struggled with. And he cries out three different times. I don't think it was three in a row. I think it was over time it just got the best of him. He says, oh, I'm about ready to tap out here. I'm about ready to give up. I'm overwhelmed. I can't do this. Please help me. He cries out three times. Notice Jesus' response to him. He prays three times that, Lord, take this away from me. But the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. When you're going through hard times, praise God because you're a candidate for God's power. So don't hide or run from those negative thoughts and emotions and what's going on deep inside of you. God wants to do a work in your life. And then Paul says this. I want to be able to say this too. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness. I haven't said that lately. Have you ever said that? Oh boy, thank you God. This person just said really hurtful and hateful things to me. Thank you. 
He's saying that, basically. So therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content. Content, yeah. With weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities, for when I am weak, I am strong. You hear that? You going through a hard time? Praise God. He's going to do something powerful in your life. Look to him. Trust in him. Trust in him. That's what he's saying here. How to thrive, live your life saturated with God's word, motivated by your God-given privilege and potential, empowered by God's presence, celebrating all you have in God's kingdom or, or family. Look at verse 12 through 14. We're finishing up right here. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. So let me ask you this. What if you were to ask 10 people the same question? You're gonna ask 10 people the same question. Do you trust God? And each answered, yes, I trust God. But nine of them actually did not trust God. How would you find out which one was telling the truth? If you secretly videoed each of the 10 lives for a month, you'd probably be arrested. Okay, that's not in my, that's not in my notes here, but I was thinking that as I was writing that. It's like, ah, oh, that, that's probably not a good idea. But let's just say that, that somehow you were able to do that or you did that or you could at least know what was going on in their lives for a month. And then after watching the videos, what would stand out in the life of the one who truly is trusting God? How would you know a person is trusting God? Here's what I've got. It's based on this text. It's verse 12. The person with an abiding spirit of thanksgiving is the one who is truly trusting God. Thanksgiving. You notice what it says? Giving thanks to the Father. The person with an abiding spirit of thanksgiving is the one who's truly trusting God. The foremost characteristic of a person who is trusting God is thanksgiving a thankful heart. I know, God, you got this. I know, God, you're bigger than this. I know, God, you're better than this temptation I'm being drawn off away to. You, you will, your promises are much better. It's, they're thankful, celebrating all they have in God's kingdom, his family. Giving thanks, here's your next fill in the blank. Giving thanks, characteristic of trusting God. Here's the next one, inheritance. He gives us an inheritance Celebrating all that you have in God's kingdom or his family. Contentment and completeness, that's your fill in the blank, in Christ. There's a great story, it's actually a psalm, Psalm 73. It's a great one I go back to from time to time. But at the front end of Psalm 73, the psalmist is, he's got the envy engines revved up high. And he's looking around at the culture of the wicked and evil and he's saying to God, hey, the wicked and evil, these people don't even care for you, they don't even believe in you. And they're prosperous. They have a lot of money. They don't even have any sickness in their life until they finally reach the end of their life. They're living long lives. And he's thinking, man, I kept my heart pure in vain. He actually says that. It's like, oh, all that I did, it seems like it was empty. And he's really struggling as he looks and compares his life of following Christ with the life of those that aren't following the Christ. They seem more prosperous and successful. And then, and then he comes into the temple and everything is different. He has this view of God that's out of this world and it changes his perspective. And a couple verses that he says that have always been rich verses for me, very sweet verses, and this is what he says. He realizes, whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. What they have is nothing compared to what I have in you. He realized that. Big view of God. Oh, my goodness. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. What I have in you is better than anything. I'm telling you, that's the kind of relationship he wants with you, that there's a sweetness. You realize all the success in this world, whatever's going on out there, it's nothing compared to what you have in him. So let me ask you, are you cultivating that within your heart? Are you reminding yourself of what you have in him? There's nothing better. Nothing better. And then light. 
Light is uh, origin, purpose, destiny. John 1, 4 through 9, it talks about, uh, refers to Jesus as light seven times in six verses. In fact, the first of that chapter, chapter 1, he says, in the beginning was the word. The word is talking about Jesus, and the word in the Greek is logos, which means logic. Jesus brings logic into our life. Origin answers the question, where do we come from? Purpose answers the question of why am I here, and uh, destiny answers the question of where are we going. You need to have those questions answered and that brings light to you. He says in this text, he has delivered us from darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of light. Listen, as Christians, we don't need to be confused about what's going on in this world. We have, we have all that we need. We have origin, purpose, and destiny all in Jesus Christ. Don't be confused about all the craziness that's going on in this world. Come back to him. We have the light that dispels darkness. And then redemption is where he ends it. Jesus paid our sin debt with his blood. That's the gospel. He did all of this. We can have all of this through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. We owe him our lives, not only as our creator, but also as our redeemer. So how to thrive, live your life saturated with God's word, motivated by your God-given privilege and potential, empowered by God's presence, celebrating all you have in God's kingdom as family. This is the life you've always longed for, whether you realize it or not. Next weekend, we're going to talk about the meaning of life, uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. I'll be up front at the end of the service along with any available elders. If, you need, uh, if you're new, I'd, we'd love to meet you. If you need prayer or would like to commit your life to Jesus, we'd love to pray with you. And if you have any questions about this message, we'd love to answer those questions for you. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. In fact, I'm, I'm going to pray these verses that we just studied. My prayer for all of us. Father God, we pray that we would be filled with the knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we will walk in a manner worthy of our Lord Jesus Christ, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in our relationship with him and our intimacy with him, being strengthened with all power according to your glorious might so that we may have all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to you, our Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. You have delivered us from the domain of darkness and have transferred us to the kingdom of your beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We pray and celebrate all of these things in Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Love you guys.